Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning in the name of Jesus, our Redeemer. You, Jesus, are the source of our unity. You have united sinners with a holy and righteous God through your death in our place, through your sacrifice, through your humility, through your slavery for our sake. We are united to the King. And you have purchased us out of slavery to sin and placed us into your kingdom to serve you from the heart. That is a miracle of mercy. We could never truly honor and glorify you apart from you intervening and coming into the world to take our place. You have made it possible for the outcast to come near. And for that, we thank you. We thank you that you revealed that mercy in your word. And we're here this morning to submit to you, Holy Spirit, as you direct us and teach us and draw us to Christ through your inspired text. Your word testifies of your glory. Your word guides our life and the direction of our church practically. You feed us spiritually here. You direct us practically here. You draw us together corporately here to give praise to you and admit we need you and we need your direction. We want to glorify you and you have not left us in the dark. You have shown us how to do that as we go into your word. Help us this day, I pray, to be humbly united in our service for Christ's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, we, we began a study in Philippians last Lord's Day, and we're continuing on. I made it through a whole half of verse 1 last Sunday, so I'm not going to retread all that, but I am going to mention a couple things about that and then point you in the direction we're going to go into verse 1b this morning. So, so we will finish verse 1 today by God's grace, all right? Um, and I emphasized last week that it's important for us to go through this text carefully and slowly because every word is inspired by the Holy Spirit for our good and for God's glory. And so we focused last week primarily on the first passage, the greeting that Paul and Timothy gave to the church at Philippi where they called themselves slaves of Christ Jesus. That's the word that's translated servants in most of your Bibles, but it should be translated doulos, it should be translated douloi, Servants, plural, um, it means slaves. It means slaves. And so that text helped us recognize something about the Apostle Paul, that he, he knew that he was nothing more than a servant, a slave of the King Jesus. And so it actually exalted Christ through his humble greeting. And this is the point of the Christian life anyway, isn't it? Our ministry isn't to exalt ourselves, it's to exalt our King the one who served us by becoming like us, becoming a slave in our place, to die our death, to live our life. We want to exalt him, and we're just thankful to be called out of slavery to sin and into his service. And I mentioned last week that there is no one who is born in this world who is not born a slave. We're all slaves. We're born slaves of our sinful hearts, our wicked, depraved hearts. And in God's grace and mercy, He sends forth His Son at the proper time to become like us, to take our place, to live our life in righteousness. 
and then receive our punishment upon the cross to satisfy God's wrath against our sin so that we could have His righteousness credited to our account and be set free to be His slave for eternity. Set free to serve the King who created us, the, the Master who became our Savior. That's what you're set free to do in Christ. It's a blessed slavery. It's important that we understand every single word here in this text. And this morning, I want to simply just read verses 1 and 2 and then begin to go into the outline that you have. I hope I can stick with the outline you have in front of you. And I'm going to try to beat the train in my reading here, so hold on. Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the grace and peace he's speaking of here in verse 2 are, are the gifts that we've been given already in Christ. The favor that we've already received. He's saying, I'm, I'm asking God to continue favoring you in your ministry, granting you peace that you've already obtained through Christ's sacrifice as you serve Him in the church. But when he says in, in verse 1b that he's writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, that's a very significant statement. He actually, it's interesting, he actually does something here he doesn't do anywhere else in his other writings. He, he mentions overseers and deacons in the greeting. But notice that he puts them after the saints. And these are the leaders. He puts them after the saints. I think that's just another way of kind of putting a punctuation mark on the fact that we're all slaves in Christ. But we're also all united as believers in one body to serve one king together in unity, in humble unity. I think that's why he says to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Sometimes, sometimes one small verse contains the key to an entire epistle. And we see that here in this text. In, in 1.1, when he says this, he's, he's saying that all the saints, those who are in Christ, are given a special privilege. And he wants us to know that this phrase is significant. And so God in His grace, the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, continues to emphasize this little phrase, in Christ, throughout the rest of this epistle. If you, you just look with me quickly at chapter 2, verse 1. Notice this. You see the phrase repeated. And when you see this continually happening in an epistle, you need to understand this is the Holy Spirit's way of, again, accentuating this, highlighting this. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. All those things that he describes after in Christ are a result of being united to Christ. Look further down in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ. So your thinking is affected by your relationship to Jesus. Then look at chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ that he's referring to. Rejoice in the Lord he says. And then in verse 8 and 9, it says in chapter 3, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, 
For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found, notice, in him, in union with him, united to him, not having a righteousness of my own. So his, his righteousness, he knows, is coming to him through Christ. That righteousness that comes, he says, not from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. He repeats it again in verse 9. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 14, he says it again. Practically, being in Christ does something to him. He says, I press on toward the goal. That's the goal of sanctification. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. His holiness is contingent with his relationship with Christ. And then in 4.1, he repeats this phrase again. Verse 1, it says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. Your standing is established and made, made sure when you know that you're in Christ. And then look down at verse 4. He says again, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Your, your joy, your eternal joy and humility and your unity and everything you have that is eternal is in Christ. And in verse 19, he ends and says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Everything that Christ obtained is set apart for you in eternity. It is yours in Christ. Righteousness, peace, forgiveness, holiness, joy eternal. That is yours in Christ. So I think when, when Paul in verse 1b uses the phrase, in Christ, it's not just a simple greeting. I think it's weighty. I think Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, used the words that he used so that he would make a point. So that these saints and ourselves would be transformed by this reality that we are called saints in Christ. Being in Christ means that all Christians, every Christian, all born-again people, all people who have been regenerated by God's grace are set apart for God's service. You're saints. You're set apart spiritually and practically to exalt Christ in unity. In Christ, you're set apart practically to be holy. In Christ, you're set apart spiritually, counted as if you are holy in Christ. The Christian spiritual life is lived out in Christ's life and power. The Christian's practical life is lived out in Christ's body and in His service in the church. I think that Paul writes this because as we talked about last week, there was an issue in the church at Philippi of pride. Pride in their, their status. Pride in their citizenship as Romans. And he's trying to help them understand who they truly are. He wants them to be identified in Christ. And I think that, that helps us. Our identity in Christ is that we are slaves set apart for His service because of His grace and for His glory. Sometimes in the church, we tend to do 
what the world does. We tend to elevate certain leaders to a position where they have a, a higher status than the other Christians. They're more spiritual because they're leaders. And so I think that's why he puts overseers and deacons at the tail end of that passage. You're all given a place to serve in Christ. You're all set apart personally by Christ to serve Christ for the good of his body. I think that will protect the church from pride and from envy. I think it will protect us corporately and personally. I think that's Paul's Holy Spirit-inspired purpose in this. I think that's why his opening words in Philippians 1.1 should cultivate what I titled on the top of your outline, humble unity, right? Humble service for Christ's sake. In Philippians 1.1, Paul seems to emphasize humble Unity. He seems to emphasize that it is cultivated by two things, and these were on your outline last week and again this week. He emphasizes that humble unity is cultivated by, number one, exalting Jesus' identity. He identifies Jesus by contrasting himself with Jesus, saying, I'm a slave of the king. So he wants us to identify Christ and exalt Christ in our service in the church. That's why the apostle starts that way. Secondly, Humble unity, I think he says here, is, is cultivated by understanding not just Christ's identity, but understanding our identity in Christ. That's what it talks about in 1b. In the second half there, verse 1, I think he's trying to emphasize Christ-exalting unity in the church is cultivated by understanding two subpoints. Christ-exalting unity is cultivated by understanding, A, our identity in Christ is a gift from Christ, personally. And I think he, he wants us to exalt this, this Christ-like unity in the church by cultivating it. B, that our identity isn't just in Christ and a gift from Christ, but our, our identity is a gift to Christ's body. You're saved by Christ. You're placed into His service for His glory and the good of others. You are a saint. You are set apart for Him. I think he's trying to emphasize that Christ-exalting unity is what He wants, what God wants. It's, it's cultivated here when we understand who we are, first of all, in Christ. That's why verse 1b states that he's writing to all the saints in Christ. That phrase, again, is highly important here. Paul's cultivating unity by revealing that our identity is given to us. You don't become a saint by doing good works because all of your works are tainted by sin. So by being called a saint, he's, he's identifying us as a people who have been granted something we don't deserve. And the gift that we've been given is the righteousness of Christ credited to our account. And that came through Christ's sacrifice personally. All believers, he says in this passage, all the saints, all believers are identified as the, the Greek word hagios. Hagios means holy. The word saint there means holy. That word means set apart for sacred use. We have examples of that in the Old Testament when you look at the temple and you look at the tabernacle and God called His leaders to set apart certain utensils to use in the holy service within the tabernacle. 
You have instruments that were holy. You had the, the altar. You had the laver. You had all these different things that were set apart for God's sacred use. You had priests who were holy priests set apart for God's sacred use. And then, amazingly, because of Christ, here in the New Testament, we find out that every believer is hagios, holy, set apart to serve God and to declare His glory. Every Christian, every one of you that are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and have repented of your sins, trusted in Him, you are set apart personally by God the Father through the personal work of Jesus Christ and sealed by His Spirit eternally and put into His service. You're a sacred instrument in the Savior's hand. Look with me at 1 Peter to see how the New Testament describes who we are in Christ, our identity. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Speaking to the believers, speaking to Christians, people who follow Christ and have repented of their sinful self-righteousness and their offenses against God and turned in faith to Jesus as the one who could redeem them from their sins and forgive them by being sacrificed in their place. All those people are spoken of here. But you are a chosen race. You're a chosen race of people. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for His own possession. And then He tells you why you have been chosen. This is why you have been set apart. This is why you're hagios to God. That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You who have received mercy have received it for a purpose so that you could proclaim the excellencies of the One who called you out of darkness into His service and you do that through your service corporately as believers. You'll notice in verse 9, there is no such thing as an individual Christian ministry. It's all corporate ministry. It's body life. We're a race. We're a priesthood, not priests. We're a nation. We're a people group set apart by God. We've been purchased by Him. We're His bride. We're His body. We are His body here on the earth to proclaim His glory. Now, that is an astounding verse in light of the reality. The reality is none of us, not one of us here in this room are holy unto ourselves. We're not holy because of our good works. We're not holy because of anything we would do. Everything we do and everything we are is tainted by our nature, which is sinful. Look with me at Isaiah 64 to see this. Isaiah 64 in verse 6. None of us could be identified as holy because of our works. None of us could be identified as holy because of the sin that lies within us, according to this passage. Verse 6 and 7, it says, We have all... Become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like polluted garment. Like a polluted garment. 
We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Then notice verse 7. There is what? There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. No one can raise themselves up. No one can come before God's holy presence because of the indwelling sin that dominates us. Verse 6 says we're unclean ethically, religiously. We're polluted. Our righteous deeds are soiled by our filthy hearts. We cannot bring anything holy to God on our own. So that just, that just makes me makes me wonder why in the world does Paul start out saying to the Philippians that they're holy? That they're all holy. They're all. Every person that received this letter at Philippi that believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ is described as saints. Paul calls them saints, but that's not all he calls them. Notice he says they are saints in Christ Jesus. That is the foundation and the source of our sainthood. It's not the good deeds that we do. Saints are not a bunch of dead people who did good things in their life and get crowned saints by the Roman Catholic Church. That is not a saint. A saint is anyone who is in Christ by faith alone. And what's astounding in this passage to this church at Philippi is they would expect for Paul to address the overseers and deacons. But yet they're being addressed first. And they're being called saints in Christ. Bakers are called saints. Farmers are called saints. Teachers are called saints. Day laborers are called saints. They're all being called to be set apart for God's glory in Christ. Now, this is hard sometimes when we read a letter like this because we're so divorced from the culture and the context, we don't really feel the weight of it. But this little phrase, to these saints, would have been astounding. Imagine reading this letter for the first time or hearing it read for the first time, maybe because you couldn't read and someone else is reading it to you, and, and you hear this phrase, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the hagios in Christ Jesus. And the, and the person says, wait a minute, brother. Read that again. I am what? I, I, am, I am what? You are set apart in Christ. I mean, could you imagine this person? He hears this. She, she hears this. And she begins to run around saying, look, listen. Did you hear what the Apostle Paul said about us? In Christ, we are sacred. We are called into His service. We are united with Jesus in our work, in our life. We are, we are in Christ. I mean, what a, what a pleasant surprise that had to be for the readers. I pray that it's a pleasant surprise to you as well. I pray that it's a reminder of the pleasant surprise that God revealed to you when He saved you. He didn't just call you out of darkness into the light. He called you into His holy service as saints in Christ. I think what he's doing in verse 1, he, I think he is reminding all of us that are believers that we are 
sacred unto God. We are set apart. Not just the leaders. All of you. I mean, everything you do, your work, your schoolwork, everything you're involved in is set apart unto God to bring Jesus glory. That is your ministry. That is your mission field. That is your calling and your privilege because you have been united in Christ. Now, this is supposed to do something, I think, in the saints. It's supposed to cultivate unity based on humility. We're all in the same way. We all deserve to be separated, yet God in His love sent His Son to take our place to forgive us of our sins and bring us together as one body, united for Jesus' glory. I think this is really amazing in light of the theological significance of the word hagios. I mean, just think about this. Are you holy practically all the time? Is everything you get involved in, is it, is it always sacred? Is it always done for the glory of Jesus alone? It's not. So it's significant that our holiness is tied back to being united in Christ. Where we fall short in our service, Jesus never fell short in His service. That union with Christ humbles us as we serve one another in the body of Christ. We're called holy together in Christ, in His service. But to understand that, I think we have to, we have to pause sometimes as we read through texts like this and ask questions. We ask theological and practical questions of the text when we study the Bible. First question I wanted to ask when I looked at this text is, why does Paul call believers hagias? Why does he call them holy? And the second question is, why are they called holy? Why are they set apart? Why are they called to be saints in God's service? What's the significance of this to the church at Philippi and the church at Sovereign Grace? So I think for us to cultivate Christ-exalting unity here, we need to ask the first question. What makes a person a saint? What makes a person holy? I think Paul gives us a hint, and it's obvious there, I've already emphasized it. The person who is holy must be in Christ, united to Christ. That's where my sub-point A comes in. Our identity as a saint is a gift from God through Christ. Your identity as a Christian comes to you as God's grace. When, when he says in verse 1b that we are identified in Christ, he's using a very rich theological phrase to exalt Christ's glory and to exalt God's grace. He's, he's not saying they're saints because they've done something for Christ. He's saying they are saints in Christ, called apart by God, by His grace, and through His peace that we see in verse 2. See, we need to understand something about our union with Christ. This is astounding to think about. Our, our union is a result of God's grace alone. Not by human effort, not by human works, not by righteous and religious deeds that we do. All of our religious and righteous deeds are tainted with sin. We are, we are united personally to Jesus by God's grace. See, God's gracious plan, His eternal plan, before the foundation of the world, was to save His people 
from their sins by an amazing, amazing act of grace. God's gracious eternal plan was to save His people by personally identifying us with Jesus Christ. He does that through the doctrine of justification, which we'll look at in a moment. Let me point out some truths about our union with Christ, though. I'm going to point out three things. You can write these down as we go. Our union with Christ was personally planned in eternity past by God. Our union with Christ was personally planned in eternity. Look with me at Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5. This, this is God's gracious eternal plan being written down for us to see and behold and be humbled by and recognize how we are brought into this union so that we would understand that this was a personal plan of God the Father. In love, He did this. This is astounding in light of our sinful wretchedness. In light of our depravity and our rebellion against our Creator, this passage is absolutely amazing. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 says, let me back up to verse 3. be even better. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him, that's personal. He personally planned this. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be Hagias, set apart and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. Our union with Christ was personally planned by God the Father. And He accomplished it by sending forth His Son at the right time. That is amazing. Our union was something that God determined that we needed and we could not obtain on our own and He did something personally about it. I love how verse 4 ends, verse 5 begins, in love, God the Father predetermined, predestined that we would be adopted as sons through the death of His Son. That's what it's saying. That's a personal plan. That's the personal plan God had for our salvation. He identifies us as His adopted children in that text. Secondly, this eternal plan of God shows us that our union was not only personally planned, it was personally accomplished. Your salvation was costly. My salvation was costly. It was personally accomplished through Jesus' life through Jesus' death, through Jesus' resurrection, according to Romans. Look at Romans 6, Romans 6, 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been immersed, this isn't talking about water, it's talking about spirit baptism. All of us who have been immersed into Christ Jesus were immersed into His death. This is spiritual union with Christ on the cross. This is amazing. On the cross... 
The wrath that Jesus is receiving is because of our sin. And He is being baptized into our death for us. So that we would be baptized into His life for eternity. Verse 4 says, We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. See, in Christ means that He personally accomplished your redemption by taking your place. You were united with Him in His death so that you could be reunited with Him in the newness of life. Verse 5 says, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe, we trust that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has lordship or dominion over Jesus. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, you're in His death on the cross, you're in His resurrection. You are with Him. He is living for you. He is dying for you. He is being raised for you. The life you now live, you live by faith in Him for His glory. And He accomplished this union sacrificially and personally. But He did the work so that we would be able to glory in the benefits of His grace. God's gracious plan from eternity was to save His people not only through His personal plan and Christ's personal work, but also our union is brought to us personally by God the Holy Spirit. We, we realize we are saved when we are immersed by the power of the Holy Spirit into Christ. Immersed, baptized by the Holy Spirit. That has nothing to do with any ecstatic utterances. That has to do with being placed in Christ supernaturally by God the Holy Spirit. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, God in His mercy was uniting us with Him there. He was receiving our penalty. His life was imparted to us, imputed to us. And that was done by the power of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians First Corinthians 12, 13. For in one Spirit, we were all immersed, baptized, into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. Every born-again person has been baptized into Christ by the Spirit's power. That's how our union was personally realized. The Spirit of God placed us in Christ. And this is just amazing to think about because when, when Paul uses this little phrase, saints in Christ, he's saying our union, our holy union with Christ is, is so personal. Think about this. This is, a, this is amazing in light of our sinfulness. Our union with Christ is so personal that what Jesus earned for us through His righteous deeds, 
What he earned for us is rightfully ours as if we earned it for ourselves. What Jesus earned in his righteous deeds, he earned for us. What he earned for us is rightfully ours as if we had done them ourselves, though we had not done anything righteous. There is none righteous. No, not one. Yet his righteousness is counted as ours by God's grace. That's the doctrine of justification. Our union, understand this, our union with Christ or in Christ is based on God the Father's declaration by grace. Our union is based on God the Father's legal declaration, His legal imputation of Christ's personal righteousness to our account. That is what declares you to be hagios. You are forensically, legally declared by the judge of the world to be righteous, as righteous as Christ, though you have no righteousness of your own, because Christ came and became your substitute to impart and impute to you God's righteous gift, forgiveness and Christ's righteousness. When, when Paul uses the phrase, in Christ, he has all that in mind. He has in mind that God the judge justified us by declaring us righteous in our substitute. Through Jesus' substitution, we are made right with God. Look with me to see that in Galatians 2. Galatians 2. And I want to tell you something about this. This is amazing because in Galatians 2.20, the little phrase, in Christ, is explained it's, it's explained in such a way that we recognize that it, it speaks of our union with Christ and it also speaks about the, the result of being in Christ. It means that Christ's righteousness is credited to us, imputed to us, so that we could live differently in this world as hagios, as saints. Look how the Apostle Paul put it in Galatians 2.20. He speaks of the union he has with Jesus in his death. I have been crucified with Christ. In other words, my life... My life was imputed to Jesus upon the cross. Jesus' life, he's going to say, is, is now imputed to my account, credited to my account. But my life deserved crucifixion, and Jesus took my place as my substitute. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. When Paul uses the phrase, in Christ, he is not just talking about our spiritual condition. If you understand your spiritual condition before God is in Christ, it will change your practical living in Christ. That's what he says. Knowing that I've been crucified with Christ, and now my life is His, and I'm hidden in Christ, and His blood, and His righteousness, I live a life now by faith in Him, for Him. For his glory. He is trying to emphasize something to the believers that our identity is in Christ, and it is not only spiritually significant, it is practically significant. This is the good news, by the way. Substitution is the good news. Galatians 2:20 is the gospel. Jesus' life of holiness, his righteousness, 
was credited to your life personally through his death. Your identity is personal to God. He wants you to know that you are identified with his son through his death. Jesus' death sets apart your life from eternal death powerfully. He died the death you deserved, received the wrath. He received it all in three hours on the cross so that you would live forever for his glorious name. But he didn't stay dead. He rose. And we're in his resurrection as well. In Christ's resurrection, we are consecrated. We are set apart. Our lives are in Christ. In his resurrection power, set apart for his service practically. Our identity as Christians is a result of God's personal intervention. It's a result of His grace. It's a result of Jesus' humility. You realize we're called slaves, but Jesus became a slave willingly to make us servants, practically. Jesus personally sanctified Himself to do God's will for us so that we could be set apart for his service. That, that's supposed to cultivate. I think that Paul wants that to cultivate humble unity in the church at Philippi. I think it should cultivate humble joy in you as a Christian. It should cultivate Christ-exalting unity as a result of this. If you know that all of us are equally in Christ by grace, called together as chosen people through Jesus' life and death and resurrection, that should cause us to link arms and serve Him for His glory without elevating ourselves, but instead pursuing His will, seeking His kingdom, not our own. So that, that sort of leads me to my second question in Philippians. Why, why did Paul intentionally call the believers at Philippi saints in Christ? I think he answers, and I think the ordering of the words actually implies, I think he implies that we're set apart to serve together. Our identity as saints is granted to us as a gift to the entire church body, practically. Our identity is granted to us as a gift to Christ's body. You're set apart, and again, I think that's why he puts saints up in front of leaders, you're set apart to show that there's equality, that we're all in this service together in Christ. You're set apart as a gift to the church. Every one of you that are members of this church, you're, you're here as Christ's servants to edify the body locally, practically. Paul emphasizes that, I think. He emphasizes that here in the way he words this. He is emphasizing that we're all graced by God individually, right? Every one of us who have been brought into this church, into the church, have, were brought there individually by God personally. He sent forth His Son to save us. But we're not saved to be individuals. We're saved to be part of His corpus, His body. We're all graced by God individually so that we may exalt God collectively, corporately. God wants His manifold wisdom to be known in the world through the church as we unite around truth and we live it out practically in the body. 
The church is supposed to be the living epistle, the living letter to the world that Jesus reigns. He is alive. His church is active. It is pursuing His will. It is living for His glory. And it is affecting the world. And that won't happen if we're not focusing on being humbly united. We'll be divisive. We'll be looking at it as a corporation, as a business. I love John Piper's book years ago that he wrote to pastors. Brothers, we are not professionals. We're slaves for Christ. We're all slaves together for the glory of our Master. Peter says the same thing in a different way in 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4. He talks here about us being in Christ for a purpose, granted certain things for a purpose. We're, we're called individually, but we're called together collectively for a purpose practically for a purpose in the local church. Look what it says in 1 Peter 4.8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. And that, that's, that's an active, humble unity right there. Okay, because not everybody's lovable. I'm not real lovable, lovable most of the time. I, I, I know that we're not all lovable. Yet we're commanded and we're empowered by God in Christ to pursue this. And he says earnestly and he means from the heart, from the desire. Though we're not lovable, we should do it the way God loved us, with agape, God-like love, going after those who need love, who need forgiveness, who need care. Not because they deserve it, because they need it, like we needed it when God loved us. So keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. When they've sinned against you, when they've hurt you, when somebody in the church has been harsh to you, remember what God has done to forgive you. Pursue that person in love. Don't condemn them. Remember that you are one of them. You're like them. You do things like that all the time to others. You love those who are in need of love. Love covers a multitude of sins. It doesn't ignore them, but it lovingly embraces the person so that you can direct them Back to the gospel by the way you treat them. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Don't complain when needs arise. Exalt Christ through this desire to be united in the way you share your goods. Verse 10, as each has received a gift. This is speaking of spiritual gifts. Okay, As each has received a gift... Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's variegated or multifaceted grace, favor. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that, here's why you do this. Here's why you do verse 10 corporately. Here's why you exercise your gift in the body and you're commanded to do so as a good steward of the one who gave you the gift Here's why you do it. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You're called individually, graced individually by God, but you're placed in the body as saints in Christ. To exalt God in Christ collectively. When you're called together corporately, you are called together to 
manifest the glory of Jesus in the way you treat one another and the way you exercise your gifts. The, the passage in verse 10 is indicating that if you are a Christian, you have a spiritual gift that is supposed to be used for the glory of Jesus in the church. Are you using your spiritual gift to glorify Jesus corporately in this church? Think about that. It is a multifaceted gift. You may have certain areas in which you are gifted that other people aren't gifted. And when we all come together, we, we produce this glorious glow to the, to the praise of God. When we come together, it's like a diamond shining in the sun. We all have differing gifts. And the facets sparkle throughout the world. When the world sees this, they recognize that these people are united and empowered to point to Jesus. That's, that's why the church is called together as saints. That's why we're called together, set apart. It's to do the sacred work that God's called us to do in the world. Now, when you go back to Philippians, I won't neglect the latter half of the passage there in B, 1B. He does address overseers and deacons. I'm not going to go into the details of all that. We've done that many times, and we can do that in the future. But we need to recognize some of the members, some of the saints in Christ Jesus are gifted to be overseers or pastors, elders, and oversee the spiritual lives of the saints. Other people, obviously, that are saints are also called to be deacons and care for the physical needs of the church. But I would guess that most of you may not feel that you're called to either of those positions, to those roles. You may not feel like you're called to be an overseer or a deacon. But according to this text, every one of you are called and set apart in Christ to serve Him for His glory. Every one of you are set apart. That, I think, is what Paul's trying to emphasize in stating it this way. We're all set apart as Christ's slaves, His servants, His saints, called to honor our Master and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me show you how I think you can do that. Look with me at Ephesians again. Ephesians 1, 3. When, when he speaks of God here calling us into salvation before the foundation of the world, what he's saying is, I am calling you in Christ for a purpose. He is saying that he is setting them all apart as Christ's slave, and he's doing so by His grace. So, so first of all, everyone here who is a believer can, by God's grace, serve Christ. Every Christian can do this because of this passage. Again, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, that means all those who believe in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Here's why he did this. He did this so that we, we corporately, should be holy and blameless before him. You are set apart. Every Christian is set apart by God's grace to serve Christ. You, you don't have to think that, well, I don't have the greater gifts. I don't have the, the more impressive gifts. I don't, I don't like to talk in public. I don't like to do this. I don't like to do that. No, don't be discouraged. God has called you into His service. If He's called you to salvation, He's called you into service for Him. 
He not only loves you, he has, he has gifted you with the ability to glorify Him through your abilities, through your talents, through your gifts, because of His grace. So we're all without excuse here, okay? All of us are called into service by grace, by God's favor. We're all set apart as Christ's slaves to serve Him in being holy, living holy lives. Look with me at 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1. You're all set apart to serve. How do you serve? Well, first and foremost, you serve Him by living for His glory. Living in His commands. 1 Peter 1, 14. This is your calling. This is what you're set apart to do right here. This is how you're going to serve Jesus at the very beginning. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. This speaks of a certain degree of repentance. In other words, if you're called into Christ, you're called out of something else. Out of darkness, out of pursuing the passions of the flesh, and into His service, which His service is to be sacred, holy. It says you're not to be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, you have been granted and imputed righteousness laid to your account not just to get you into heaven, not just to call you righteous, not just to call you holy, but to affect you in holiness. Your new standing in Christ is to affect your life. You're empowered by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit now drives your life. You know, holiness is always going to be the pursuit of of the Christian's life. It will never be your perfection until glorification, but holiness will be your pursuit. If you're not pursuing holiness, you are not in Christ. If you don't desire holiness, there is no evidence that you're in Christ. What that means is, if you're a Christian and you sin, and you offend God, or you offend a brother or sister, you hate it. You despise it. You want to be rid of it. You want it to die. That's the evidence of regeneration. That's the evidence that you're born again, that you have a new spirit, you have a new heart. You're set apart from the world and the passions of the world unto Christ. You're also set apart to serve Jesus by evangelizing the lost. That's not just for the pastors. That's for the saints. We equip you for the work of the service to send you into the world to evangelize the lost. Look at 2 Timothy 2. This is what you're called to do as a saint. You're called, set apart in Christ to be an evangelist to the lost, to reach out to the lost, to declare the truth of the gospel to the lost. 2 Timothy 2, 24. And the Lord's slave, that's the word servant, doulos, and the Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patient, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Now, I fully recognize the context of this passage is, is that Paul is writing to an elder, Timothy, teaching him how to be a faithful pastor the Lord's slave. But I also fully understand the context of both 
Timothy, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, all three of those books, that the pastor's job is to cut a path for the church to follow. They're to lead the church in the ministry. And so when he, he addresses Timothy here in particular, he's also addressing all those who would follow Timothy in the ministry. That's you. So to serve Jesus, you don't have to have a showy place in a pulpit or in a committee. You have to know the gospel and go share it with people. You're called to serve Him by evangelizing the lost so that perhaps God will grant them repentance. You're also set apart as Christ's slaves not only to reach the lost, but to love the church. That's something every one of you can do practically. Romans 12. Romans 12 describes this. This is why you're set apart as saints. You're set apart as saints to honor our Master and our Savior by loving His people. Romans 12, 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the, many, and the members do not all have the same function. This is important to us. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who acts, does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. For the most part, these gifts, these abilities that are described here are given to you. You can do these things. This is what you're set apart to do. You're set apart in a local church to practice these things. You're set apart as holy, sacred instruments in Christ's hands to love the church. Practically. Caring for one another's needs. Holding one another's babies. Visiting one another when you're sick. Praying for one another when you're suffering. Rejoicing together when, when someone is saved in your family. Consider how you can practically apply the doctrine of justification in your corporate exaltation of Christ in the unity of the faith. I want you to consider how to set apart your lives as saints practically by looking at Romans 15. Go to Romans 15. Romans 15, 1-7. Let me read it and I'll go back over it. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you, notice this, grant you to live in such harmony, unity, with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice magnify, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. 
you are, you are set apart practically to do the things that are described in this text. Verse 1, you're set apart in Christ to reflect Christ through your patience by bearing with those who are weak, by exhibiting grace to those who are burdened, not considering yourself, but considering others as more important than yourself like Christ did. That, that, that exalts Christ and it brings about unity in the church. If you have a church full of people who are running around bearing one another's burdens, humbly serving one another for the glory of God, it's going to extinguish pride and envy in the church. That's, that's God's point. Verse 2 says we should practically live out our sainthood, live as saints, practically be set apart in order that we may please our neighbors and edify them. It means build them up. Your brothers and sisters in Christ, build them up. That's what you can do practically. That's how you as a saint can serve Jesus in the church. You can build one another up in the faith, doctrinally, theologically. And you can do that very practically. You know how you do that? You, you do that by talking to one another. Sunday mornings, you're here to learn, you're here to listen, you're here to participate through that means of grace God's given you, but this is not going to be enough for you to apply this in. This context that, that Paul is talking about here in Romans is the context of Christians spending time together, personally, talking, visiting, praying, listening, all those things being done I believe when he says build them up, I believe all those things are being done theologically. So the more you know in Christ, the more you can edify those who are in Christ. Verses 6 and 7 in this passage says that we do this for a purpose. We are set apart practically in Christ to build up and bear with one another so that we would live in harmony and magnify Christ. Magnify what? Magnify His love. Magnify His grace by living as loving and gracious people in the church personally. Now, being a saint is a gift imputed to you, granted to you, placed, placing you in Christ. But living as a saint is your responsibility. You're empowered by the Spirit. You have what you need in Christ. You have all the love you need in Christ. You have all the power you need in the Spirit. But it's our responsibility in sanctification to apply this truth to our lives. And I think what Paul wants us to understand is the theology of justification that places us in Christ will transform us practically in the church. It will humble us to know that God saved us by sending forth His Son to die for us, to unite us to Himself and place us in His body. And that will, that will humble us together and bring us into unity because we see that there is something greater going on here besides our comfort, besides our own personal agendas, we're here to magnify Jesus corporately as saints. If you're going to start being united, we need to start in the home. The little church, the home. This is where you're going to cultivate humble unity. First, you husbands, be like Christ. Humble yourself and serve your wife by doing what it says in this text. You are called, and ladies... Humble yourselves and do what it says in this text because you are called to do something else that's difficult also. You are called together as a husband and wife, as parents, 
to live as saints practically within your family, according to this text. Ephesians 5.22 Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And then I think the weighty passage here falls in verse 25 on the husbands being men. Husbands, love your wives. If he stopped there, we'd be okay. But that's not where he stopped. Love your wives, husbands, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Husbands, verse 25 says, you are called, set apart as a saint in your home to live out your humble unity in Christ in the context of loving your wife as Christ loved the church. Love her as Christ loved the church. Jesus did die for the church. That's true. And most of you husbands, you would take a bullet for your wife at, at the drop of a hat. If somebody threatened your wife, you would stand up and take their place. But how many of you will live for your wife? by washing her in the Word daily. How many of you are set apart and recognize that you are set apart in Christ to be the spiritual head of your wife and direct her to Christ daily in your service to her as a saint? That's your primary ministry. If you guys are believers, you husbands are believers, that's where your ministry starts as a saint. You're set apart to wash your wife in the Word and that implies that you must know the Word. You must study the Word. So you're set apart in the truth, as Christ prayed in John 17, 17, so that you can wash His bride, your wife, in the truth. We're to do that also in the church. We are to serve one another practically in our church family so that we would exalt Jesus Corporately, look with me at Colossians 3. This will be my last text we'll look at. But Colossians 3, 12 is important. We are to live as saints in Christ, practically within not just our own family, but our church family, so that we can exalt Jesus as a body, corporately. Verse 12 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, God's hand-picked people, blood-bought people, people purchased by Jesus' blood. Put this on as holy people, he says, and beloved people. He says, have compassionate hearts. Put on kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Church, this is how you serve. This is how you are set apart in Christ to serve. It's by putting these things into application in the church to promote humble unity. Verse 14 says, Do this, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Cinch everything up in agape. Cinch all of your, your efforts and your practical ministry up in the love that you've received in Christ. 
Let the love, he's going to say, of Christ rule your hearts. Verse 15 says that. And let the peace of Christ, the peace that you now have with God through Christ, that's what he's getting at. Let that dominate, rule in your hearts. If, if the peace you have with Christ, with God rather, through Christ, is always in your mind, it's going to dominate your actions. We are to live as saints in the love of Christ. Now, that's not divorced from being instructed though. To live in the love of Christ means you need to know and understand the love of Christ. And so God has given us His Word to instruct us theologically so we can live in biblical unity. Without theology, there is no biblical unity. We have to have our unity grounded in theology. So verse 16 comes along and says, Let the Word of Christ, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. What unites us is Christ. What dominates and directs us practically is Christ's Word. So, back to Philippians 1. I think, I think that Paul's greeting in Philippians 1.1 is much weightier than it appears at first glance. I think it's weightier because Paul understands that we need to know who we are in Christ. And I think that he also understands that we need to know what we are called to do in Christ's body. I think that's why he emphasizes this here. He knows if we know who we are and know what we're called to do, it will protect us as a church and as individuals, it will protect us from doubting God's call on our life personally. And it will protect us from developing envy in the church corporately. God, God wants this doubt and this envy to be eliminated. Doubt and envy in the church body will rob the church of its strength. When you have Doubts, and when you have an envious heart in any other relationship, you, you don't feel united. You don't feel joined together. You don't feel any power. You don't feel any strength in that relationship. It's always falling apart, coming undone at the seams. And he doesn't want that to happen with the church. He wants the church to be robed in the righteousness of Christ and enveloped by his love in humble unity. He knows that humble unity will strengthen all the saints in Christ. It will strengthen us spiritually. It will strengthen us practically, personally. And it will eventually cause us to rejoice over what God has done to give us this strength. By Jesus being set apart as our substitute, we are now granted the privilege of being counted righteous in Christ and serving Him now and for eternity. And that should be the humble joy of your heart this morning. You are called in Christ to serve the living God. He picked you. He called you. He baptized you. He brought you in so that you and I would know Him and declare His glory with one voice in unity as a church. Let's pray that we do that. Father, we thank You today for the unity we have in Christ. The union we have through the work that Christ accomplished in our place and the result of that union which is 
the ability to serve as your instruments, to serve you in the church and to reach out to the world as ambassadors for Christ. We, we thank you for this divine privilege. It is something we certainly do not deserve, could not earn, but it's something that you have graced us with so that we could exalt Jesus on the earth until you come, Lord Jesus. We pray that until you come, your church would be united humbly in your service for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.